happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 215 for April 14th, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the fabulous University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me, as always, is this lovely canine. Yes, Moose is here to join us. Um, I'm Wes Fryer, and I'm here in Oklahoma City where Moose is going to keep me company tonight. Our son has moved to Houston, so he's been next door for the show for 10 months. I'm actually wearing my shirt, so I'm at Cassie School, recovering tech director after four years, now instructional coach and media literacy middle school teacher. Happy to join Jason for an opportunity to pontificate, and perhaps rant, but certainly, you know, keep up our reading about the latest tech news. So how does this whole thing work, Jason? Well, Wes and I have put together a list of interesting topics ripped from the headlines and the technology news, and we're going to shoot them through an education prism tonight and see if we can't find any insight for those serving our nation's students in schools across the USA. And tonight we have articles on security, social media, Google, Microsoft, Apple, connectivity, um, an article that I think Wes will like, which is a new category tonight that we've never talked about before. I read this article and it screamed Wes Fryer, uh, a miscellaneous category, and we'll end tonight's show with our Geeks of the Week. And if you want to see any of the links that we talk about or the many we end up not getting to on a weekly basis, go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links. It will take you to this massive Google document. I'm honestly surprised the document hasn't slowed down dramatically because it is huge, hundreds of pages of links going back to our first episode years ago. But Wes, where would you like to start us out tonight? Well, I think we should start under the Google headline. We've got a number of articles there, and uh, I'll, I'll take a first one. So Google, as we might have mentioned on the show in the last month or so, you know, is taking an interesting stand with regard to the tech correction and criticisms of, you know, privacy intrusion and, and the reach of, of social media companies, et cetera, et cetera, or big tech, I guess. <clears throat> and so I put two EFF articles into our links. The first one is from March 20th and it's called Google is testing its controversial new ad targeting tech in millions of browsers. Here is what we know. And as most of us know, we have these things called cookies that are set in your browser. And you probably have noticed in the last year or so that websites, and they are required to do this, have to say something about a privacy policy in, in, in terms of, I, think, I don't know if it's just U.S. law in Europe, but anyway, lots of sites. And then you have to just click. It really doesn't do anything. It just you know gives you something else to agree to that's a long legalese document. At least that's my opinion. But this article talks about, you know, what the, the flocked technology is, um, basically how no one has a choice about it. We're being put into groups. It says there's going to be like 33,000 different categories. And rather than being individually tracked, every user of Chrome and Google tools is going to have a flock ID. And so it's not going to be as targeted about individually, but I guess they're going to try to put us into maybe one or more flocked groups. Um, this link that I just dropped into the chat tonight, amiflocked.org, so it's A-M-I-F-L-O-C-E-D.org, 
you can just click that in your in your Chrome browser, and and then there's a button you click, and it will tell you whether or not you're part of the I think five tenths of a percent of Chrome users that have been involuntarily put into this uh, beta testing group, which I think is going to go through August or maybe July, anyway, into the summer. <sighs> and then um, there's there's a whole bunch of other links in there, and of course the EFF is a is a very strident advocate for privacy and for consumer rights. And so back in March, uh, they published an article by Bennett Ciphers called Google's Flock is is a terrible idea. Um, I will admit to you that I have not read extensively about Flock. Um, but, you know, I think that the move to privacy, as we've talked about, Apple has made really strong not only statements, but taking actions, I think, that are that are advancing the cause of privacy in terms of disclosure of the kinds of data that apps gather. We've talked before on the show about surveillance capitalism, which is the model economically that really undergirds, you know, Amazon as well as Google and, and Facebook for sure. This gathering of data that's mostly opaque and hidden from us, but it's utilized so that advertisers can target us and, and you know, all kinds of folks can target us. Democracy and representative democracy can be subverted through this. So um, I would like to understand this a little bit better. But And these articles, I think, can help uh, give the background to the Privacy Sandbox, which was introduced by Google back in 2019. And it is, you know, Privacy Sandbox is a suite of cookie-less protocols designed to satisfy the myriad use cases of third-party cookies provided to advertisers. You know, advertising is the core of Google's business. They don't want to give that up. So I think that Flock is an attempt to come up with something new, which is not going to be as offensive perhaps to people because it's less individualized and, and people are in more groups, but it's still going to serve the needs of advertisers. And so Google and others, and it actually could give Google more power. I think we had an article a few weeks back about that because they're setting these, you know, standards and formats and already, you know, Google AdSense and the different, um, you know, programs that Google has, you know, they're, they're being accused of, of being monopolistic. So um, I think part of the problem that it's pointing to, um, I mean, they say we're still going to have privacy problems with finger uh, fingerprinting or being able to still identify, um, you know, in individual users. And then I think there's also just a criticism that Google is going to, is going to take more power um, and it's not going to, it's not going to solve underlying problems. Um, they, they say that it's the opposite of private preserve, privacy preserving technology. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna be bad. I don't know that it's gonna be worse, but anyway, I thought that was worth throwing in there. So do you have opinions about flock and have you been flocked, Dr. Neifer? Um, I just checked. I have not been flocked. So I am not uh, a, a flocked American at this point. Um, what I would say is that I'm still trying to have a kind of having a hard time to understanding the difference between this and what Google already does, right? Like, and I understand the cookies are a different concept than what Flock is suggesting here, but I feel like um, they already um, uh, do categorize me in in several categories, actually. And the way I know that is because I can go to adsettings.google.com and I can take a look at all the categories that they've put me into. And they call them uh, how your ads are personalized. And just to give you some examples of things that it's telling me, uh, I am 45 to 54 years old. I am male. I speak English and one more language, which is actually not true. I can order uh, tacos and beer in several languages, but that's it. Oh, it thinks I speak well, Italian. I 
been to Iceland, so that's probably that's one. true. That's true. Um, uh, although I've been to Italy too, for that matter. Uh, accounting, financial software, air travel, American football, uh, Android OS, apparel, Apple iOS, arts and craft supplies, athletic apparel, barbecues and grills, audio equipment, bars, clubs, and nightlife, baseball, beauty. I'm not going to read the whole list. Obviously, it's 197 of them. Where do you get this list again? This is adsettings.google.com. And oh, wow. I am already, I mean, I, so just of the, the 10 I read you there, three of these are not even close, right? Um, and, and so, um, I guess what I would say is that, um, uh, I think Google already does a form of this. And I don't know, like, I, I think that advertising is, is an important part of, of funding the web, right? Like, that's one of the things we don't oftentimes talk about. You know, we, we, we talk about how creepy the advertising can be and, and, and the tracking it does over a website. But the bottom line is, is that ad tracking and advertising pays for a good percentage of the internet. And so we have to come to terms with that. And I think I probably would be okay to exchange less of my personal data in exchange for paying for some of these services. But to be honest, I'm not entirely sure I want to make that choice for others. And there've been lots of attempts over the years to try to exchange actual financial uh, 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 exchanges with companies uh, to do less advertising. I do one right now with YouTube. I spend $10 a month to get no advertising on YouTube. And I have to say it's worth every dime for me because of the amount of time I spend um, on YouTube utilizing videos there. And in fact, when I go to another account or I go to an incognito window where I am not subscribed to the the uh, opt-out, it's terrible the number of ads that get thrown into uh, you know the typical YouTube video. Right. And if you do what I do, which is I tend to jump around a little bit, that's an awful lot of advertising. I don't know enough about Flock yet. I do think that Google has a vested interest in making sure they figure out a balance between advertising and, uh, and that, that funds both their business and really lots of web-based businesses and the creepy factor, right? They're going to have to figure out a balance of the two. Um, I trust the EFF. They have generally been an organization that I agree with and that uh, uh, they fought a lot of important internet fights over the last 20 years of their existence. I don't know enough yet to be able to tell you for sure if Flock is a good idea or bad idea, but I, I, I will continue to analyze this, and I will tell you, Google hasn't really nailed me. There are tons of things. I mean, I've been a, a very faithful Google user now, really, since the it started in 1998. I had an early Gmail account. I was an early Google Docs user. So I've been around for some time, but the fact that it really thinks that I am into, let's pick something on here that's just uh, patently ridiculous, Plumbing fixtures and equipment uh, is something that Google thinks I am into. Um, I am into hiring plumbers because, ugh. Um, it, and I just looked. It also thinks I'm a parent or a parent of a grade schooler, which is also not true. Um, uh, in fact, it thinks I'm a parent of a teen, too, for that matter. And I guess I was theoretically a parent for a year when we had an exchange student. But it's way off. And, uh, you know, uh, there are other things that are obviously way on here, too. It's it clicking on politics. It's figured out my politics. Um, it's done a decent job of, of knowing I'm really into pizza, but you know, there are things that's not. So I, I think this is a stay tuned kind of situation. Well, thanks for sharing that ad settings. I went to that on my personal Gmail and I have actually at some point opted out of ad personalization. So oh. I, I see nothing there. I suspect that may have something to do with jumbo 
<clears throat> mentioned that on the show a while back. Their website I'll drop in is jumboprivacy.com. It's an app that lets you connect your Facebook, your Google, other things, and then lets you do things like, you know, delete maps data after 30 days and, and just, you know, not have kind of an, an unfiltered or unchecked stream of data, you know, going to these sites. Cause you can go to these different sites and change settings and things, but it's hard sometimes. And anyway, it can be complicated. The other link that is off of ad settings, because I, I have ad per- personalization turned off. I kind of think Google still gathers all that information. It just may not be personalizing right. for me. But boy, is Facebook and Instagram ever, you know, we continue to have these weird things of like, I think we just talked about that. And I'm seeing this ad on, you know, Instagram. Um, there's a link that says control ad personalization on other websites and apps that use Google ad services. And so that takes me to... I'll drop this in optout.aboutads.info. And that website, which I might have been thinking it was sketchy, but wasn't coming from a Google site, because uh, you don't really run into many .info sites, or at least I haven't. And so this uh, checks your IBA status. I don't even know what that means. It's running JavaScript, network quality, first, first party cookie check, and third party cookie checks. So it's, it's, it's checking the browser for 129 participating companies. It's almost through. And then it looks like maybe it's going to, it says it's going to provide transparency and choice under the DAA principles. Um, and the DAA principles are linked to your ad choices.com slash principles. And this is the data. What is this called? Digital advertising alliance self regulatory principles. And so they've got like four PDFs to download. And anyway, it's so interesting. So like all of this is an example of companies trying to self-regulate, right? They're trying to respond to perhaps a good faith effort that, you know, their, their leaders have, but probably, probably it's just the, the push and the pressure that we have for privacy, for more consumer protection and to not have, you know, companies, Companies to just without restraint, you know, exploit user data uh, for purposes that, you know, could be, you know, not desirable. Um, so anyway, it's, it's kind of, I mentioned on the show a week or so ago, you know, hearing, I think on the uh, Today Explained or, or maybe it was um, the Daily, I think it's Today Explained podcast, you know, advertisements by Facebook for regulation saying we need some tech regulation. But of course they would, it's coming. So they'd rather write it rather than have it written by somebody else who, you know, they're not uh, feeling good about. So very important, I think, to talk about these kinds of issues. We still, you know, we haven't seen a, tech, a major tech correction in terms of regulation. There's the, the, um, not the specter of it, but it's, you know, it, it, it seems to be likely on the horizon with the change in administration that we've had in the United States. Um, so I, I definitely think that the core basis of the web being, you know, an advertisement based, Hey, this is free. You know, your data is paying for it. Your, your privacy that you're giving up is what we are, are fueling all of this with. The unintended consequences of that are pretty extensive. And that's what that whole documentary, The Social Dilemma, was about. That's what uh, Shoshana Zuboff wrote her whole tome of uh, about, you know, surveillance capitalism about. I think there's a lot here that, you know, yeah, we're all busy and we're all 
living our lives and, and we're using these tools. But, you know, sometimes you have things happen, not just in the United States, but in other countries, especially with regard to elections and things. We're like, whoa, what just happened? Oh, I guess Facebook just got completely weaponized by this, you know, authoritarian and look what happened. So I th- we're going to continue to to see this play out and it's good to see these tools are available. Uh, and I would encourage folks to check these out. We'll have these linked in the show notes. Uh, see what, uh, you know, web choices tells you your um, your status is. Uh, this is interesting. Huh. Customizing all these just about say status unavailable. So anyway, you can opt out. There's there's one hundred and thirty three companies here and most of them. Huh. You can you can choose to select all and you can opt out of all of them. I don't know. I think, frankly, most people are not going to be in the weeds with this kind of stuff, caring about it. Um, So that's a rather pessimistic view. (laughs) I don't think many people are going to get that deep into these. Oh, I'm not hearing you. Did you mute yourself? Oh, you're muted. Sorry about that. And um, so what I went through, went to uh, opt out at aboutads.info, and I did try to opt out of all of these. And not only was the status not available for almost half of these, the ones I did try to opt out of, which was every one of them, said the opt out wasn't uh, was temporarily unavailable. So I guess, you know, thanks, ad choices, right? Like, I'm assuming this is an industry attempt to try to say, oh, no, you've got control over your entire, uh, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But, yeah. Um, you know, well, I guess we'll, we'll need to continue to monitor this. I, I don't know. It, 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 none of this feels very transparent. I feel like Google feels slightly more transparent than every other company because to start with, I've heard of them, right? I haven't heard of any of these companies on your ad choices, right? And no, I, they don't really want you to know about them either. No. They collected the data and they're using it and they're happy for us not to be, you know, aware or concerned. Right. And platform and OpenX and owner IQ and Pebble Post, like none of these are, are familiar to me. And I am happen to be an internet savvy American, right? So that that that's something that I think is, is interesting. Um I will have to see where this goes. I mean I I certainly there has to be a balance somewhere between advertising that enables these services to to be at a, a low or free cost. And uh, advertising that doesn't creep us all out. And I think that's something and, and violates our privacy, too, I might add. And that's something that's something we're going to have to figure out. It's going to have to be part of the larger tech correction. And the final thought I have about this is, is sort of a shout out for for anybody teaching out there or just anybody thinking about privacy. You know, I'd love to have a strong lesson for my middle school students that really helped them understand privacy more and care about privacy more. You know, typically we tend to think of the, of so many people who say, well, I'm not, I don't do anything wrong. So why would I care if this data is gathered about me? But this again goes to speak to Apple and Tim Cook. And I think I put this link in the show notes. It was the, the interview with Tim Cook that Kara Swisher of the New York times did, you know, uh, I, I think that he is correct that privacy is a fundamental right that really undergirds many other rights that we have. It is it is foundational to who we are as human beings, to our human rights, and these are important things to understand. So, not to get a little bit deep and philosophical and legal on you, because you know we need to talk tech. So, I wanted to start with the Google topic because you know Jason's always bringing us back into the let's let's remember classroom tech. <laughs> What's the fact of this? So 
Sorry, I steered us steered us out a little bit into into the or maybe it was down down the rabbit hole there. But. Sure. Well, quite all right. Well, let me let me pick up a couple other quick Google articles here while we're on Google, and then we can move uh, somewhere else in topics. A couple interesting things happening. First, uh, 9 to 5 Google reports on April 8th that Google Search is now prioritizing in-depth reviews when ranking product reviews. So if you're looking for something like you want to buy the, the latest uh, Mac M1 uh, 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 MacBook Pro and you want to see reviews for that, it's going to prioritize ones that are more in-depth reviews rather than short, quick-hit reviews or reviews that have a star rating without a lot of analysis on it. And I like this article in part because, you know, my understanding is there was literally hundreds of factors that go into PageRank, which is the, the Google technology for, for search results, and have recently experimented with a couple of different search engines, one of them being DuckDuckGo and a couple of the other name brand search engines that I also uh, tried out for a couple weeks in my quest to see if I can move away from Google. The bottom line is Google search is really where it's at for me. The search product itself is still really, in my mind, the the top product uh, in class. Um, Other quick hits, uh, Chrome Unboxed, uh, reported on April 14th. An interesting phenomenon here. This is a little bit in the weeds, but I've been talking about a couple of times over the last year that I am personally very excited about the Ryzen Chromebooks that are coming up. Ryzen is the AMD chip that uh, is is faster than similar chips in the Intel line and oftentimes are available for for, uh, uh, much more uh, inexpensive prices than the Intel chips. And they've noticed something interesting. And the reason why this is interesting to me is that I was surprised they were surprised. But apparently when you unplug the Chromebooks with the Ryzen chips in it, and they were testing a Lenovo Chromebook with a Ryzen chip in it, the speed goes down, which I thought was actually a relatively common phenomenon that when you were not plugged into power, Windows and, and Mac pretty commonly just scale back the processing speed um, in order to help save battery life. And uh, you could oftentimes tweak those settings in Windows and Mac OS, but they were surprised to see that. And I guess that was always my assumption of what I thought was always going on with Chromebooks. But the Ryzen chips are getting really outstanding benchmarks. They are really extraordinary pieces of technology, but they did notice that if you are oftentimes away from power, you might not always see the benefit. And then two more feature sets that I think might be of interest, uh, Chrome 90, which is the uh, uh, both browser and Chrome OS. Uh, it is in beta right now, I think, and will soon be released in the open channel. Uh, th- we've teased this uh, a couple months ago because it was in an early uh, a beta of Chrome OS, but your video calls should get smoother in upcoming versions of Chrome in the next couple of weeks because they're adopting technologies that are really friendly towards video calling. And so if you're on Zoom calls and are going through the browser, if you are uh, using Google Meets or if you're using the web-based version of Microsoft Teams, then this should also improve your experience even on lower-end hardware, which I think is a welcome change. And then one final uh, Google uh, note, 9to5 Google report, a really interesting feature that is coming to Google Photos online. Uh, Google Lens is a technology. It's been around for some time, actually. Uh, it was a third-party app that was then pulled into the Google ecosystem. Uh, Lens was a technology that allowed you live to put up your phone to a, a, a sign, for example, and it would automatically translate that to another language. The same technology behind Lens is 
is now baked into Google Photos. So if you take a photo of, of a document, for example, or a sign, and you go to photos.google.com, assuming you're using the Google Photos service, then you can actually uh, see optical character recognized text, and it allows you to copy and paste from that photo. And I'll tell you that I use that this week. It's freaking amazing. Uh, in addition to like, I think I've said on the show, making, you know, smart albums that have every dog in it that we've taken photos of through the years. There's like 560 pictures in this album we can see on a Chromecast on a TV. Um, so our son moved to Houston and he's had a storage facility not far from us, um, for the last year and it has a code. And so I needed that. So like I just went into Google photos and I searched for the word code because it was handwritten on a piece of paper that I took a picture of so that I have the, the, the access gate code, you know, to get into the facility pops right up. So that's amazing. And if I would just say this, if you are not, this kind of goes into the, my philosophy of playing with media, you know, it, it's beneficial to be able to play with media and get them, you know, comfortable with it and use it with students like use Google photos, play with it. I'm not saying that you're going to necessarily use it with students and you know that it'll become something that you'll do with do with them in the classroom but the power of google's different kinds of technologies coming together and the ways in which you know facial recognition animal recognition <laughs> optical character recognition and and this is being used for for good in in the context that i've experienced but there's also other kinds of use scenarios and there's other issues here. So I just, I, I still love Flickr. I'm so glad Smug Mug bought them. I have 50 freaking thousand something pictures on Flickr. And it'd really be a bad thing if they went offline. So I'm really happy that it's, it's, it's still going strong. And I'm still publishing stuff to Flickr, you know, every once in a while. But I have my Google Photos app on my iPhone set to regularly upload all all of my content up there. And that's not all public, you know. There's just a few different albums and things I share publicly. But it's so powerful. And yay, Google. Of course, we hear things about, you know, their design ethicists or their, you know, AI ethicists, you know, being fired and other kinds of things. And you're like, hmm, this is interesting. So, you know, all is not well in the world of technology. All is not perfect in the world of Google. But there's a lot that is good. And I'm personally super excited to see that kind of integration. I use Google Lens, man, this has probably been at least four or five years ago at a summer conference up in a small town in Kansas, you know, but that this is sort of like Star Trek, right? It's not a universal translator that I'm wearing on, on my, my Star Trek badge on my chest, but, you know, being able to take an app, hold it up, get it translated into a language I understand. That's pretty cool. And so anyway, yay. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Where to next, sir? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, shoot. Let's just jump to, let's go to the article you think I'd like. <laughs> sure. So Silicon Angle, uh, reported on April 10th, uh, two different interesting factors that, uh, uh, are worth, worth thinking about when it comes to like emerging technologies. The first one is that we've talked about Moore's law here, uh, uh, uh several times, um, uh, uh, on the podcast, but Moore's law is this notion that the technology's ability, the speed, whatever way you want to want to look at it, doubles. I think it's every 18 months is the notion of that. And a lot of people have uh, estimated. In fact, I think we maybe even talked about a couple of times on this podcast that Moore's law was absolutely bound 
to are bound to slow down at some point, right? That there is a curve that would uh, eventually have to come into play because, you know, uh, things are really fast already on technology. And as an example of this, um, you know, I can still easily use eight or nine year old uh, uh, computers and they're quite functional uh, in the modern day web. And, you know, the technology that, that it's just a generation or two ago uh, in the fast moving world of technology is still pretty useful. But the, this particular article, and it's very long and goes into a lot of detail, talks about the fact that Moore's Law is not dead uh, and, in fact, uh, may be accelerating, which is a, a different thing altogether. But the reason why this is interesting, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the many reasons why this is interesting uh, is the fact that uh, it's going to really speed up how artificial intelligence is, starts to wiggle its way into our lives. And they have several examples of where this is the case. A good example of this, that they that's something we've talked about before on the podcast, is Apple's uh, uh, silicone. Uh, which is their new chips, um, are, you know, seem to be light years ahead of their Intel competitors, which seemed like it was out of nowhere. But if you think about it, uh, they've been actually working on this uh, for some time, six years, really. Uh, or, or earlier versions of the current M1 chip were actually debuted in, in iPads several years ago. And I remember then a lot of technology commentators saying that the, the mobile chips that were sitting then in iPads and iPhones were desktop class chips, which meant that they could easily run a desktop or operating system with, with much overhead to spare. Um, and uh, we can talk about this uh, a few minutes when we talk about Apple. I'm spending a little more time on my new MacBook because a certain piece of software that I needed to work on there does work on there now after some tweaks. Um, and I am noticing, uh, you know, in comparison to my uh, now six-year-old uh, PC desktop, which was a speed demon when I bought it uh, uh, because it was a gaming machine uh, uh, when I purchased it a, a number of years ago, it so happens that um, uh, it feels sluggish in comparison to the M1 Mac. So, Wes, uh, we haven't talked about Moore's Law in a while, but uh, this notion that it's, it's, it's not slowing down, uh, nor is it dead, and may in fact be speeding up, any thoughts about that or if there's a, an educational application here? Well, I think part of the educational application is we have to be, as crazy as it sounds, preparing ourselves for exponential change and you know nonlinear change. We are wired, I think, from ev evolutionarily, <laughs> you know, for change that's linear. And so, as all this stuff, you know, just gets faster and faster, it's it's harder and harder to adjust. And we need our students to be flexible, to be adaptable, to you know. <laughs> I was talking to somebody today about how, you know, back in the mid, what, early 2000s, you know, when parents were upset when kids were not in the Windows 98, 95 lab, you know, they were on Macs and were like, they need to learn how to use multiple, you know, multiple systems and be adaptable. So, I, I mean, quantum computing is also on the horizon, right? And they're saying that, you know, that is going to, the speed the speed um, capabilities of that, I mean, that could render encryption moot and totally change commerce on the web and, and all kinds of things. So um, yeah, Moore's law in, in, in different formats and variants. And, and we've seen, I mean, Intel that we've had a demise of Intel, right. And Gordon Moore worked for Intel uh, and that, you know, 
that theory really had to do with chips and, and size of chips and speeds of chips and, and all that. There's been different things that have accelerated it, but it's just, it's the speed of innovation, right? And to think that innovation is going to slow down, I think is to be naive. Now that's not to say we're not going to make bad choices as a government and as a, I don't know. I mean, why have we not, officially encountered any intelligent, you know, civilizations out in the world or out in the universe. There's a, there's a theory and I can't remember what it is, but it basically, you know, questions how long civilizations can survive until they, until they implode. Um, I think innovation is going to continue to accelerate. So it's challenging, man. It is challenging at a really basic level as far as teachers just adjusting to change and how do you, the fire hose of new, strategies, new content, new apps. How do we adjust? I think Moore's law challenges us at multiple levels, but we need to find ways to to collaborate, to connect, to be lifetime learners and to, you know, be able to uh, adjust, adjust what we're doing, you know, and, and sharpen the saw, man, keep on, keep on learning new things. So I think that the, the trajectory of, of operating system that goes back to that baby duck syndrome thing, right? Google that in Wikipedia, baby duck syndrome. We tend to be imprinted with a system that we've used early on, whether that's a smart board or a PC or a Mac or whatever. And then that's like, we got to use that. I can't change. Well, that's really not the best frame of reference to have for the, the times in which we live. I'm not saying that we're all going to need to just jump ship and change immediately, but Hey, let's all consider Dr. Neifer. He's going <laughs> to to the, the Apple fold, but there's really good reasons for that, right? The, the bio yeah. data features, the privacy features of, of Mac OS security. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we, 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 there's something kind of getting more philosophical here, but it's, there's good reasons for us to, to have an open mind when it comes to different technologies and to not become so, I've got to hold on to this and I'm never going to let it go. You know, that, wait a minute, really? Okay. I mean, people, people are going to do that and they do that. But for, certainly as we have opportunities to lead our organizations and think about how we may need to pivot and we may need to change, Yes, you have a lot of people that are comfortable using technology A. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the most secure. It's going to be the most effective. It's going to be the best choice, you know, moving forward. So I think this article appears to highlight that fact, and I will be going into greater depth reading it and sharing it, especially as far as AI, because it is it is just – I shared with my kids a video of um, – of the, of the group that developed an AI for StarCraft, which is far more complex as a game than chess or Go. And, you know, you, anyway, it's just mind-blowing. And the pace of this stuff is, is pretty staggering. Yeah. It's scary, too. But Yep, absolutely. Well, I thought you might like that article. So Thank you for sharing it. All right. Uh, let's see. How about Apple? You've got a bunch of Apple articles here. So. Sure. Well, let me note that um, I'm not entirely sure if this is universal or it's a beta version. Um, I did download the, the main version of this, but Google Drive for desktop now works on silicone, M1 silicone Apple uh, products. And so I did download it. Um, I was going to uh, mention one quick thing about this, um, based on my personal experience. I'm not, I'm not on my MacBook. Uh, here's my my MacBook Pro. I'm not on my MacBook Pro full time yet. Uh, it's about an hour or two a day. 
I start off usually with it in the morning when I'm doing email and I'm slowly getting it kind of modified where I'm going to. But I did decide because I did do a lot of tweaks to try to get Google Drive to work a couple months ago. I decided that it was best that I uh, start over with a fresh copy of the operating system, which is actually something I do quite frequently on, on, on every device I've, I've really ever owned. I reset them um, if I'm using them constantly, usually once or twice a year and, and kind of start over again. And I've got a, a patter down to where I'm not out that often and it usually speeds up my device. But I will tell you, I struggled quite a bit uh, with reinstalling the operating system on this thing because uh, for some reason that this thing is, is locked to me and my account. And um, when I went in and did what I thought you needed to do to be able to reset the uh, operating system, reinstall the operating system from scratch, it turns out I locked myself out of the machine because it had it didn't recognize me as an authorized user because there was no authorized user logged in. So you still booting a single into what is it single user mode or something? There, there used well, to be a way that you can still recover from that. Well, that, that's still how you do it. Actually, that's how you reinstall it in general. You can't you can't reinstall from uh, the main operating system. You have to do the special startup mode, which on these newer Macs is you hold Whichever. down the power. Yeah, they yeah. changed the key codes and stuff. We just figured this out at, at work the other day at school. Right. And so I, I, I pressed, uh, I, I pressed the power button and held, held it down, which put me in a special startup mode. And I eventually had to, it, it took me a couple of minutes of searching on the internet to find the right instructions. So I guess I wasn't that put out since so it took me a couple of minutes to find it out. I strongly recommend before you do that, especially if you're an enterprise customer, um, and you are managing, you're not very strongly managing these with a, a mobile device manager. Uh, be sure because it, it wouldn't let, or it still locked that to my, to, to my account, my work account. And so even if I wanted, and I didn't have the password, if I didn't have the password for it, I would have been in trouble. So I would strongly recommend look at the Apple tech docs on reloading the operating system and follow those instructions uh, directly. But um, what I wanted to mention is that Apple sent out uh, information, this is from The Verge, it was reported all over the place, that there is an event next Tuesday um, that is, my understanding is that uh, there's a list of things they think is going to be released. One of them is a new iPad Pro, another one is a new iPad Mini, um, an iPhone SE, so that would be the third version of the iPhone SE, which I think is actually a really great deal if you don't need one of the fancier new iPhones. Um, new AirPods, new AirPod Pros, uh, the rumors are, you know, are all over the place on this. But the other thing that is a factor here is that they are expecting uh, Apple to change technologies to a more modern technology for iPads. Um, I'm actually in the market right now for a used iPad 3. Whenever they release new iPads, that's great for me because it's going to make more um, of the used iPads that I'm looking for available in the marketplace. But uh, something we've talked about at least a half dozen times in the last six months, uh, there is a shortage of uh, supplies to make those iPad displays. And so they expect there to be limited availability to start with of those, those new iPad Pros. So I have to ask, Wes, new iPad, mini iPad Pro, iPhone SE, AirPods, AirPods Pro, is there anything on this list that you would like to see next week that might put you in the market for a brand new Apple product? Well, I need to pay off pay off the phones that we put on, you know, T-Mobile uh, payment plans uh, first. I'm still I have the oldest phone in our family now is an iPhone eight, but honestly, it's it's pretty much fine, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, not really. But several different thoughts and responses. That article you shared con confirms what I had heard before. 
this was released by Siri. So people yeah. asked Siri, when's the next Apple event? And Siri knew. And then, oh, sorry, my daughter's calling. <laughs> I forgot that. No, I do not disturb. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty funny, thinking about AI and, and voice assistants and things like that. Um, second thought, I mean, I got to beta, uh, sort of beta test. Well, it was. It, I got to test one of the M, M processor uh, MacBook Airs earlier this year, and, yeah, really fast. Great. I missed my touch bar, but because um, I don't think I had that with it. Um, and I have that on my MacBook Pro. But um, our school, this has just been announced, we we have been, when I was tech director for four years, I inherited this whole model where we refreshed desktops and laptops out of five-year cycle. And we almost had a fifth of the faculty and staff every year that would turn over. Well, our new technology leader, who's called our tech manager, um, at his previous school, you know, did a wholesale rollover. And, you know, the more you buy from Apple, and this can work with other vendors as well, you know, the more discount you can get. And so we're going to do a wholesale entire campus. Everyone gets an M1 MacBook Air, basically. Um, and that pricing is going to is going to be considerably better, I think. And that's going to be on a four-year cycle. So... You know, I have experienced the M-Processor Mac. It's freaking great. I didn't really have any issues at all. The only thing I had was that Skitch hadn't updated, and I couldn't copy and paste the clipboard of a screenshot that I made. I, I had to drag it, you know, as a file to the desktop and then move it over. Um, it just affected my workflow a little bit when I'm making slideshows and things like that. But overall, you know, absolutely fantastic. So, no, not really. I mean, I'd be shocked if Apple started to price the uh, – what's the smart speaker that Apple has? The HomePod. Thank you. See, I've gone over 50, so the brain just doesn't work at debate speeds anymore. Yeah, I mean, we're invested in, in the in the Google ecosystem for all that, and that doesn't – I don't know. I mean, I'd love to see the new Apple Watch be less expensive. Uh, my wife actually would really like that for a birthday present. Um, but, you know. I, I'm, I'm not, we're, we've reached a point back to Moore's law and the article you knew I would like, we've reached a point where the technology of a year ago, two years ago, I mean, this is an iPhone eight. I mean, Jason bought, what, what's it? iPhone XR. What was XS. It? Yeah. XS a year old at half the cost. You know, I mean, this, this iPhone yeah. eight is, it's pretty awesome. No, it's not an iPhone 11 Pro. I gave that one to to the daughter, and she's made she's doing great with it. Um, so yeah, we don't. <laughs> Apple does not would not really approve of this statement. We don't have to buy the brand new Apple stuff. You know what what is last year or the year before is technology. I mean, I still absolutely love my Apple technology and the return on investment, and the, which means the longevity of how long you can use it. It just, it's fantastic. It's really great. But, you know, we don't all have to have to buy the the marketing hype and just jump right in. I know plenty of people who do. They love it. But, you know, I think <laughs> maybe it's, I don't know, it's just the, the finances of having multiple kids in college or right. older. You know, I'm not quite on that. You know, I got to adopt it really quickly. But I do love working for a school that is going to help us stay on a you know technology adoption curve, and I'm I'm thrilled to have the school you know give me an M1 Mac this summer. Yay! Right. Well, and I would say on that notion of Apple stuff retaining its value, um, I I've been selling some um, 
like surplus tech at the Knifer household the last couple of weeks to afford to buy my used uh, iPad that I'm looking for on Swappa. And as it turns out, I had an uh, iPad Mini 2, so it was the first one with a retina display in it. That It was a nice one at the time. It, it had uh, cell uh, coverage on it. It was a 64 gigabyte, which was uh, the step-up version of that. And I managed to sell that. It was an excellent condition because it's been in the case every day of its life. But I managed to sell that for $180 on Swappa, even though it's not even getting updates anymore. Um, and that's going to go to the, my, my target used device right now is an iPad Air 3, but I want the 256 gigabyte version and I want it with, uh, uh, uh cellular coverage so I can, I've got a tablet, uh, a SIM that I can slap into it because I, I like that feature. Um, but you know, it, it does maintain its value, but at the same time, I thought that purchasing my iPhone XS, which was, I think it was two years old at the time, I bought it was an exceptional value. It was about 44% of what the retail price of what it was when it was originally sold. And it was in great condition. And the battery is, is pretty worn down. But right now I'm in the house, so it doesn't really matter. And then when I am not in the house anymore, you know, Apple will change out the battery for 60 bucks. So it, you know, and that should bring some new life to it. So certainly interesting. Um, a couple other articles that, that caught my eye this week in the Mac world. Um, 9to5Mac reported on Tim Cook talking about the, the, the epic fight that Apple's having with Epic over the App Store. And he used a really interesting analogy here that I think is, is actually pretty apt, which is that, uh, he said that this opening up of the App Store, what Epic is, is suing Apple over. And, and also we saw some of this this year with other, uh, 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 state legislatures that were trying to force Apple to either allow alternative app stores or to open up their app store. He said that the, what, what Epic wants is for the app store to become what he called a flea market, which is that zero, uh, uh, monitoring of, of apps, zero, uh, vetting of apps by Apple staff before they're allowed in the store. And I would say, I mean, having been in both ecosystems, the Play Store and the nine to, or I'm sorry, and the uh, I just said the source, the uh, the Apple App Store on iOS, that I think Mr. Cook is correct that there is a big differential. There is some vetting that goes into pushing updates uh, uh, in in the Play Store, um, uh, which you know it it doesn't it does it keeps out i think broad categories of things like adult content for example is not something you used to be able to find the place where you can't anymore because adult content uh, uh apps and web uh, website fronts aren't allowed in anymore but it seems to me that a it, there's less chance for a nefarious app to make it into the iOS ecosystem than there is into the Google Play ecosystem and Wes, i know you've only played briefly in the play store um and you have uh played a bit with Android over the years, would you say that that's an apt uh, differentiator between the iOS product and the the Android product? Yeah, absolutely. As I think, I don't know. Did we talk about the the Om um, Malik article about the App Store and his criticism that it was presenting a veneer of high quality vetting, but really the folks that vet? I don't. Maybe we didn't talk about this. Um, I need to drop it in. Um, he he's the founder of GigaOM, and he was his his article was saying that it's a veneer and a and a really false perception that there's this in depth review process. The the people who are reviewing the apps don't actually have qualifications, I guess, in, in security analysis and things like that. Um, 
I don't know. I don't, I don't completely buy that. I, I do. I think this article and that headline it sounds to me to, to be accurate. I think Apple should have the right to continue to curate the, the app store so that they can, you know, try to, to, you know, certainly keep out malware and bad actors and things like that. And the value, it's interesting, right? Because the larger you get and the more successful you get, the more of a target, you know, grows on, on your back. And so lots of people are, are targeting Apple, but Hey, don't break your device and go install something from Cedia. If you want to, you know, go out to the wild west. I mean, there are alternative app stores, but you have to violate terms of service with Apple and jailbreak your device in order to do it. Um, gosh, I don't know anybody who would ever consider doing that in the past. <laughs> Name Sherman Nicodemus, who used to blog under an alias on my blog. Um, yeah, I, I don't. There's there's danger and risk in doing that. I feel pretty happy, not only for myself, but also for our family. Right. Because we have these different devices and. You know, if something would be compromised or whatever, yes, you would be probably be asked to fix it. I feel really good and secure inside the the Apple ecosystem. It doesn't mean we can't click something that could could compromise or whatever. But you know, I'm I'm feeling pretty strong about the take that Apple's holding. Wow, something just flashed there. That was weird. I don't know. I've been having some connectivity errors here, so hopefully, did, did I am I fading out at all, or am I still okay? Uh, you're you're back now. Um, I your image froze and your audio froze. Yeah, weird. Okay, maybe I will plug in next time. I can do that now. Our son is gone, and I can run a cable from that other um, other router. Anyway, I yeah, I think it's a good art, a good headline, and I I certainly support Apple's ability to remain you know, autonomous and, and, uh, a, you know, able to set the terms and, and define what they want in the, in the app store experience. They're the ones that created it and they're the ones that support it. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Let's, uh, I just realized that it's, that we're just a few minutes from the top of the hour. There's one more topic I want to for sure get in tonight. And I imagine there's one or two articles you do as well, Wes. Um, this is from connectivity. Um, and there's, there's two quick articles I want to talk about. One of them is the FCC would love you to download its internet speed app uh, and test speeds here. And this is from, uh, the verge on April 12th. And so I did this. The FCC has an app available now that you can download, and it is called FCC Speed Test, and it asks for your location, which I think is a legit ask because, you know, it wants to find out where you're located so it can compare speeds. Um, I just did this uh, yesterday for the first time, and what I would tell you is that this seems, or the, the, the numbers it reports back are infinitely slower than any other speed test available on any platform. So it's available on the Google Play Store and on, um, obviously the, the iOS app store. I downloaded it and I've taken a couple of tests, um, the, the last couple of days. And, um, it says that my, my home internet, the average speed is 20 megabits per second. Uh, I pay for 400. And when I do desktop speed um, tests or when I use one of the other mainstream apps for this, it is several times that um, as part of it. And then it says that my my cell tower speed, so um, uh, wireless connectivity, 
uh, is in the 30s and 40s, which is actually a little closer than I would expect. I think this is a really smart strategy on FCC's part, because I think if you really want to know what it looks like, then asking people to test it in real life scenarios and situations is the best way to do that. I was just disappointed that the, the results seem so far off of other speed tests available in, in, in app stores. Very good. Hey, I put a question out in the chat. One of the reasons why it's wonderful to join us live, if you can, as Peggy George is such a faithful um, uh, follower and and uh, listener to the show. What article do you want to do next? She suggested the one I put under the miscellaneous category. So this one is The Guardian. It is uh, an article about digital legacy, and this is from uh, April 10th. Who will deal with your online presence when you die? How to create a digital will. This actually connects to my, my third TEDx talk, which will be a few months probably before it's published, but I shared a couple weeks ago up in Edmond at the University of Central Oklahoma, and I was talking about protecting your family online, but and I was saying, you know, much like having a conversation about estate planning and your will and things like that, you need to have those conversations with kids and with family. We need to have conversations about passwords and about, you know, how we're going to be, you know, using a password manager and protecting our digital identities. So this is talking about there's a, a myriad of issues, right, that come up when people die because, hey, and I literally just had this conversation with my parents over Easter weekend. First time we'd seen them since the pandemic over a year. I didn't know what their passcodes were for their phones. And also they use a password manager, but I don't know exactly where that password was. So they told me, I wrote it down. I think I have a picture of that. Um, so I can ask Google, Google photos, show me that anyway, you know, find me that picture. Um, it's important to think about, you know, my friend Bob Sprankle, uh, died in 2015. Uh, and prior to his death, he had actually, I had, had actually taken over some of his websites in terms of hosting those, um, and there's there's a there's an important digital legacy that we all have, and and depending upon how much we've shared and how much we've published, I mean the photos that we have. So this article is very practical. It says you know if you can download all the content that you've uploaded to these different websites, consider making a backup. You know um, there are some services that people are having for some of these kinds of things, but at a minimum, I would say. Make sure that with your loved ones, in addition to saying, here's my will and here's, you know, these are things that I would want to have happen to either, you know, my body and my things or whatever when I die. Like, how will the digital stuff happen, you know, or how will the digital stuff be cared for? If you don't have the password and the way to get into an email address of a loved one, the Apple ID of a loved one, like, content and it, it just it can be very very difficult so you can specify as the article says on facebook i think they're called legacy legacy contacts or something like that um and so you know those are those are things that you can set up you know in advance it's kind of macabre to think about but hey folks we're all gonna die like it's gonna happen and i think that's a good conversation to have is you know we're living our lives more and more on online and the digital is more important. So I think it's a good article and very practical for all of us, wherever we happen to be in age and life season. Thank you, Peggy, for suggesting we get to that article because as usual, we have more than we will have time to talk about tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Wes, we're quickly coming to the top of the hours. Anything else you want to get in tonight? 
Oh, well, why don't we do a quick social media one? Um, I put a Bloomberg article from April 14th in, and this could have been under a variety of topics, but it's, the headline is a 23-year-old coder kept QAnon online when no one else would. I might have mentioned uh, in the show last week or whatever that I have activated uh, at least a month subscription to HBO because um, I wanted to see this uh, David, I think it's is it David Singer special, The Perfect Weapon. It's about cyber war, and it's really a great documentary. Really, really do commend that. Um, but also, you know, hey, I've got the subscription for a month I'm going to watch. There's a five-part episode called QAnon Into the Storm, which some people have criticized as being more celebratory of QAnon. But I don't think the creator would have gotten the access he did to the founders of 4chan and 8chan and, anyway, these different websites. So this website talks about a 23-year-old who lives up in the Northeast. His name is Nick Lim. And he provides, they say the tech support, but the web hosting to U.S. networks of white nationalists and conspiracy theorists who are banned by folks like Amazon and Twitter and, you know, GoDaddy and things like that. And so this is fascinating. Um, and it's also important, you know, ISIS used the web, YouTube, Twitter, to, to do recruitment very successfully for the Islamic State. And the laws are different regarding international terrorism in the United States. And then, you know, things like white nationalism. And as we've talked about on the show, it can be hard to define, like when you're going to censor content, you know, that that is a touchy issue. So it's a good article. And I think huh, for us as educators, let's bring it back. Um, we need to think about civics and we need to think about the ways in which conversations about digital content enter into civics, right? We've all heard about the three branches of government. Remember, hey, you know, schoolhouse rock, I'm only a bill. There's all these things that we remember about civics. But these conversations about how free speech has limits and why those limits are important, why guardrails are important. You know, there are some folks, including this guy this article talks about, who have very extremist views on free speech, where they basically say words don't matter and I don't care what they say and they advocate because they should be able to say whatever they want. You know, that doesn't fly in Germany today and it doesn't fly in the United States either, because if you're trying to run a social media company in the United States, as Parler found out, and you, you know, go on the New York Times on Kara Swisher's podcast and say things like, it's just not my job to police people's content which is basically what they said. I mean, they had some structures, but not very many. You know, you're not going to be able to survive. So important issues, uh, interesting article, and I think something that we're going to continue to see. I, don't, I see no end to the relevance and importance of this topic moving forward because we've always had people with extremist views in the world. They haven't had the amplified megaphone that social media and technology can provide, but there are ways in which companies and governments can act to regulate those, you know, the, that, that content in the same way that, that hate speech and child pornography and, you know, horrific, terrible things that we don't even want to talk about that people can share online are, are restricted. And so those are important issues.
da da. There's a tech correction. Look, we only spent about five minutes on it today. Not like go. <laughs> so maybe that's a good thing. Well, Wes, uh, we are now at the top of the hour. What do you have to share with us this week for your Geek of the Week? Okay, well, I bought a new smoker, which I don't know exactly when it's going to ship, but I'm very excited to it doesn't play here, uh, to say that I um, hopefully I'm going to be making some new barbecue at our house. So I made a 34-something minute video uh, this week where I went through, like, eight or 10 different smokers. And it's like a year and a half of research, talking and conversations, you know, and somebody talked to my wife. They said, I don't want to watch this video. What did Wes get? And I got a Rectech RT 700 bull, which is a pellet smoker that is in made in Georgia. And it is a direct to consumer, you know, disintermediated company. There are no resellers and I, I literally can't wait so I don't know if I can put it in the back of the car, Jason, and bring it up to Montana. But if I can, I'll bring it up and smoke a brisket for you. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm going to share a quick one. Um, I mentioned in the past that part of my strategy and one of the reasons why I can spend full time on a Chromebook is because you start to collect tools along the way that are kind of unit taskers, web pages that do certain things for you. And if you spend any time uh, as a creator or working in context of creation documents, uh, you find use for these tools. And one of my favorites is remove.bg, which is uh, what I would describe as a quick and dirty uh, background eraser for images. And so if you have a photo of someone, you want to take the background out, I found this is actually a very effective tool for doing that. And it uses some pretty impressive uh, uh, technology to be able to do so. Remove.bg, I actually have in my browser, uh, every browser and every profile I have, there's a, an apps folder that I pull down in the browser uh, or the bookmark browser bar that uh, has, uh, I think on my work account, there's probably uh, uh, nearly 50 of these now that are all tools that, that, that do interesting little unit task things that can help me be productive throughout the day. It's amazing. And I've worked for four years with the chair of our English department that in the high school on a, on a children's book project, which now students are making in book creator and they're printing it on Lulu and then they have an electronic version. And that website right there, remove.bg, phenomenal. And you don't need to pay for it for pretty reasonable resolution images. Yep. And a lot of the students that have made different kinds of collages and things like that with images really have benefited because you get a transparent PNG image that you can put in and it doesn't have the, you know, rectangle of white pixels around and it's awesome. Great. Thanks. And Wes, where can we find you on the internet? Westfriar.com slash after. How about you, Dr. <laughs> I am best on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, and you can also find my webpage at www.nifer.com. But this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, and somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. If you could join us live, that would be great. Check us out on Twitter, uh, EdTechSR. We always announce when we're broadcasting. You can go to YouTube or Facebook or, and join Peggy George each week in the YouTube chat room. Also, um, if you don't want to see us live or you want to just fit us in where it fits in your schedule, you can download us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, or you can go to our website at techsr.com uh, and download tiny MP3s to your mobile device or your computer to listen to EdTechSR. And of course, all of our archives are on YouTube and on Facebook. So we hope that you can join us live. If not, Wes Fryer has a, another announcement. I just need to know, Jason, what's the weather like in Missoula? Because we didn't say this at the beginning. Has spring sprung 
in Big Sky Country? That's a great question. The answer is yes ish um we're still freezing overnight uh which will be happening i would imagine for another couple of weeks but this weekend it's supposed to be in the the low uh 70s both days which is pretty springy for missoula montana sounds good until next week yeah we hope you'll join us next time in the situation room uh good night